us today to understand that there's a reason that there's so much diversity and not always in a good way in the church world or within religion. Um, as I said, I want to remind you of something of, that I said a few weeks ago. When it comes to religion, as is seen mostly in the world today, I want to be the most anti-religious of them all. But when it comes to religion, as the Father described religion, ministering to the hopeless, I want to be the most religious of them all. I want us to be the most religious of them all. So word use is something that is critical for us to understand how those words are used. So I want to talk about, for a few moments today, language, and I want to bring that into our present and why it seems that things appear so scattered. Everybody say this with me. Let's begin with this. Everybody say this with me. We live in a time of Babel. We live in a time, we exist in a dimension, for lack of better reference, where Babylon is prevalent. Babel is all around us. Let's read something this morning. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 11. It's in the First Testament. Genesis chapter 11. And let me say this while you're turning there. There was a time when the entire earth spoke the exact same language. Now, if we're not careful, in fact, if I were to ask, I'm not going to because I don't want to put anybody on the spot and I want to get through this. But if I were to ask what language was it that the whole earth spoke before Babel, most would say Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever. That's the terminology that they would probably give to that or whatever they might say, because our mind is going to go to something that's recognizable, something that has entered into our time frame, into our thought process, or we've been taught in a classroom or wherever it might have been. Our mind goes to this, but there was a time when the entire earth spoke the same language, but I want to tell you what that language was described as was not as a particular name or reference point that we give it, but at the time it was called the language of the Garden of Eden. Which means, in whatever way that Adam communicated with the Father, that was the language until Babel that existed. Whatever language, the language of the Garden of Eden, or better said, better understood, the language of God. So whatever the language of God was prior to that time, I promise you, God did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. That was not His language. If you can wrap your mind around that, everything else I say is going to make a lot of sense. But to say that God spake, spoke Hebrew would, to, would be to say that He was Hebrew. But He was not, and yet He was. You, you with me? So it was not Hebrew. The language of God was a language that has never been heard again since Babel. The language that those spoke before Babylon has never been heard again with the audible, well I say never, it's, it's not a language that has been used 
or defined or described because man does not have a word to give it because the language of God is not associated with a tribe or a nation or a people. The language of God is associated with purity and holiness and incorruptibility. It cannot be corrupted. Within the language of God, there are no words for what evil is. Within the language of God, there are no words for what would, what would be considered sinful. There are no words for that. You're hearing me this morning. So, but then something happened. Let's read in Genesis chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now the whole earth, everybody say the whole earth. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come and let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Let's make them really hard and temper them because a lot of layers is going to be stacked on top of them. We have to make sure that as pressure is applied, the bricks don't crumble. So let's temper them. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, and they, which is like tar. And they, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That's an interesting statement. The father descended to come down and check it out. What are they building? I wonder what my kids are doing. I'm going to go check on them. Let me go see. One of my friends, Aaron Smith in Mobile, Alabama, used to tell a story, and, I'll, and I'll tell, I'm going to tell it just like he did, and you do with it as you wish. But um, he, he would tell a story. It's one of the funniest stories he's got, and I'm not going to do it justice. But he, when he tells it, you would not be able to, I would not be able to wrap you back around and get your attention. But he tells a story one time of his two boys, and when they were little bitty, they were maybe three, four, five years old. I don't know how old they were, but they were little bitty boys, and, and they realized that they, he had not seen them with the family for some time. Some time had passed during the day, and the kids were missing. And they went outside and looked all over for them, couldn't find them. They went outside, and they found these two boys doing what you wouldn't want to find your two boys doing. They had built this little playground area and in this playground area they had piled up everything that they didn't like whatever it was whatever toys whatever things that there was that they did not like that they had been given and all of that they piled it up in a pile and Aaron and Robbie his wife walked out just in time to watch both kids with their pants pulled down to their ankles peeing on the pile of things they didn't like right out there wide open the story is a lot longer than that and it's a lot funnier than that but the point being the father came down to find out what are my children doing what are they doing? And what the church has found itself doing is peeing on everything it doesn't like. And, and I, maybe I could title the message that way. What are you doing when your pants are down? And um, that probably would not go well over the air. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do because they have one language. <laughs> this gets interesting. And this is only the beginning. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come now, let us go down and therefore confuse that language so that they may not again understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they, le <clears throat> they left off building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. That day, languages, all languages that are present among us today were introduced on that particular day. Since then, many dialects, many things have formed, but the root of all language was born on that day. So, and from there, he dispersed them over the face of the earth, all the earth, and now we all have our different places. If you are in Israel, you speak their language. If you are in America, you speak our language. If you are in Spain, you speak their language. Depending on where you are at or what part of what continent you exist on, that's the language you are going to speak. And when you're a child and you're growing up in that place in which you were born, when you're growing up in that place, you... When you are learning the language until you're old enough to understand that the world is bigger than your language. In fact, it's sort of like when I was, I don't know how old I was, but I remember the day that somebody called my mother by her name. And I thought, who is that? Who's Janet? Mom, they called you Janet. Your name is Mom. She said, well, no, son, my, na- my name is Janet. I'm mom to you. In my world, until that very moment, in my world, you are mom to everybody. That was your name. But it wasn't true. In the same way, as children grow up with whatever their language is, uh, in their world, that is the only language that exists until one day something happens that shifts that. They hear something and they don't understand it. As I listened to Ben this morning speak in Spanish and, and release that word and just comfort himself and minister to himself through that word. One of y'all hugged me and left your hair on me. I'm sorry about that. But... Um, as he comforted himself with that word, and I listened to that, I was moved by it. I didn't understand anything he said. A couple of words I would pick up in there, Dios or whatever it was. I don't even know. Senor, I think it was. I think I got that word maybe. And I'm not even sure in, under, in hearing the word Senor if I interpreted that word the way that it was coming out of him. I, I could only interpret the word Senor from the perspective and the limited understanding that I have of that word. But in his language, in that language, that word senor might have many, many, many different meanings. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. How is it that there are so many versions of scripture and interpretation of God's will for mankind today? And then how do we figure out what is right and what is wrong? How is it possible, this morning I read that scripture that we just read out of Genesis, I read that out of the English Standard Version. Well, who says that that version is the most accurate? That's what they say. But who says that? And on what authority do they say that? See, it's said because they associate whoever, when they interpret Scripture, there there are two ways of interpreting Scripture. One is an interpretation, one is a translation. And when we do that, when we interpret, that means we're taking the original and we are putting that in language that is understandable as closely as we can get to that original language. But when we translate, we're simply taking that message and we're getting the crux of it. In other words, like the message Bible. You know, it can take two words and turn them into a hundred because it's trying to explain the spirit of the word, not just the letter and law of the word. Does that make sense? 
So what happens is for all these different translations and uh, editions of Scripture that we have, and it's always funny to me because they have the King James, then the New King James, then the New King James 1995, and then the Revised Standard Version 2016, and, and in five or six years from now they'll change that and it'll be 2025, and that version has changed, and there's a gazillion different uh, translations that we can read from. I simply choose the one that makes the most sense to me. That's really what I do. I don't get caught up in all of the stuff I, because I'm looking deeper and this will make sense to you in a moment. But the people, when they do this, most of the time when they're translating these Bibles, they will take those and they will look back at, at the original text as they know it. So they will look back at what's called the canon, really the canon or the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but the canon is supposed to be that original writing, that original script, the way that it was, it's supposed to be the measuring stick by which all uh, scripture is measured against. So it should ultimately be pointing every translation in the same direction so that whether I read it out of the New King James Version, and I know I'm boring you with details right now, but it'll make sense in a minute. Whether I read it in the New King James Version or the King James Version, or I read it in the ESV or the Revised Standard Version, or I read it in the Message, no matter what I read it in, whatever version, ultimately it should point me to the same idea of what the canon represented. That's the hope. That's the purpose. But we know that doesn't always work. And I shared with you a couple years ago when we went to the Solomon Islands, one of the reasons that that doesn't always work is because depending on which country you're coming from, you interpret these things very differently. In one country, specifically this one, when we think of the eagle, we think of a grand bird. But in many countries, it's the crow or the buzzard. They would replace the eagle with the crow or with the buzzard. The buzzard means more than the eagle does. So when they say we shall mount up with wings like eagles, they would be saying we will mount up with wings like buzzards because that holds more authority. That means the same to them that eagle does to us. Am I making sense? In the Solomon Islands a couple years ago, my wife and I found out and Jimmy and Jenny found out that in the Solomon Islands, what we refer to as our heart, when we think, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart? And people, you know, in our world, we get that. But if you ask somebody in the Solomon Islands, if they've asked Jesus to come into their heart, they would be very disturbed by that question. Because they don't ask Jesus to come into their heart, they ask Him to come into their liver. Their liver is that place that filters the blood, so it takes out all the bad and replaces it with all the good. So in their world, it is everywhere we read heart, they read liver. So when you see that, but see now if they came over here and I let one of them preach and they said... Jesus Christ wants to change your liver. We would do that or we would just go. <laughs> not sure what Steve was thinking. But we would not know how to put those parts and those pieces together. So let me move through this and I want to show you a couple of things and I want to make my point. I said I was going to make it briefly and I am going to do that. I'm working on being more brief than I normally am. Brief has different definitions each week. If I, was, if I went for an hour and a half last week, an hour and 15 minutes this week is brief. So I got to measure it by that. But everything that we do, get this with me. Everybody say this, everything that I interpret 
is interpreted through my through the atom in me. Whatever atom is left, most all that we do, we interpret through whatever atom remains in us. In other words, for the same reason that we look at this and we say heart, what did the canon say? Was it the heart? Was it the liver? Was it the right big toe? None of those things. In the original, see, because the, the language of God did not reference body parts. You're going to get what I'm talking about in a minute. The language of God, the language that he spoke, did not reference any body parts because remember, God was talking before there were body parts. When God said, let there be light, or before God even said that he wanted to create man, before man was formed from the dust of the earth, he had already created the earth. And he had already created the heavens. And he had already created the expanse of the universe. He had already created night and day. He had already done all of these things. So up until that point, he was already speaking. But at that point, there were no body parts. So there were no references. There's no reference point for body parts in the language of God. In the same way we call things the earthly realm and the heavenly realm, there was no reference for that. There was where he is. Wherever he is, whether in the earth or in the heavens. Am I making sense this morning? I hope this comes together for you like it has for me over these last couple of weeks. So, everything that we do, we can only, the best we can do, even though the Spirit of the Lord dwells in us, when the Father speaks to us, that immediately is filtered through, can I get a whiteboard real, is there one available like real fast? If not, that's okay. If, if we can get one real quick. <clears throat> everything that we see and hear when he speaks to us, we have to filter that through what makes sense to you and to me. We do that. I want to show you a couple of things and, and show you why uh, this is not, that the Father does not speak in language like we call language. And I'm going to help you understand what your purpose is, even if you could not, if you didn't know a language at all. See, before Adam even knew how to speak, before he even knew how to speak, when he was raised up in the womb, he already knew the fullness of who God was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Language, there was no language present. Yeah. But he already knew the fullness of who God was, who Yahweh was. So turn with me in your Bible to, second, uh, to uh, John chapter 4, please. John chapter 4. The Bible says that he who worships the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Say that with me. So God is spirit. So those who worship him, don't worry about it, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Hmm. Wow, 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 wow. So what do I do with that? What do I do with that? If I worship the Father in spirit and in truth, see, even in our mind, we immediately begin to filter that statement through Adam. That gets filtered through what does spirit mean in my head? What does truth mean in my head? Well, this is what I've heard all the teachers say, the preachers say, my cousins say, my aunts say, my mama say, my enemies say. This is what they say truth is, and yada, yada, yada. And it's all filtered, so we define it very, very differently. Really, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so incredibly simple. You could live it without even holding a Bible in your hand. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is alive, it is not found within the pages of any book, not even the Bible. The gospel is not found between leather pages. 
What you find between leather pages are words that point you in a way and help you understand what it is the Father wants to do in you. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, let's read these verses. I'm going to read two, the same story in two different places, but I want to share something with you. When I talk about how things are interpreted, this will make sense to you. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And while you're doing that, I want to share a little bit of something. So I had my class for the work of the ministry, uh, and we had that last week. And when we had that class, one of the things that I've been giving them over the last few meetings has these things that seem contradictory in Scripture. So if you find something in one scripture, for instance, in the Gospels, where you can get three doves for two coins, or two doves for two, uh, five doves for three coins, same story, same reference point, but why is it different? Why is there a difference there? Why is it in, in the book of, uh, in, in the First Testament, why is it that when we read and throughout church history, throughout our teaching, uh, we find that, I'm not going to ask you this question because most of you know it, but most everybody who has anything to do or any knowledge of Noah's Ark believes in their mind that the animals went on two at a time. Most everybody believes that. And yet, three scriptures later, he said that's not true. Three scriptures later, they were seven male, seven female. There were 14 of every kind, clean animals. The only two at a time that went on the ark were the unclean animals. I'm not going to get into all that today, but I'm making the point. The point being, so what I did in this class is I had them research that, find out why would that be? Why would this be? Why the coins here, the birds here, the two here, the... 14 here, why the clean, why the unclean, why the distinction, why does it look different, why is it taught different, why is it said different, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the, the, the conclusion that ultimately I have come to over the years in ministry that I've been in the ministry is not to try to sort out really necessarily why is it different here or to try to justify what is an apparent discrepancy, see because in the church world People have called Scripture fallible simply because there's what looks like, in the mind of Adam, discrepancies. It looks like a discrepancy when in one verse it says there are two on the ark, and then three verses or four verses later it says there's 14. It looks like a discrepancy. It looks like it was completely changed around and somebody got confused in the concept, and they did. This is what I believe about these things that appear that way in Scripture. It's a doorway. It's a window that the Father opens up for us to dig a little bit deeper. What He wants to do is He wants us to stumble over the words so that we will dig into the Spirit. He intentionally puts those things there so that we trip over the words. We trip over the dots and the cross T's. He wants us to, on purpose, trip over that so that we can say, what do you really mean by this? Because obviously, there, and there are many, many, many stories like that. In fact, I'm going to read one to you now. 2 Samuel 24, 1 reads like this. says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, everybody say he. he. Who is he? Who? Let's read it again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, referring back to... Okay, there we go. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, David, and number Israel and Judah. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel. Now, that's 2 Samuel 24, 1. 2 Samuel 24, 10 says this, referring to this story. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people that he had been incited to number. David's heart struck him, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. 
But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So we have in 2 Samuel where he is being instructed, at least apparently by the father, to go and to number the people. When he numbers the people, David finds when he create, or has the census, he begins to find out, realize, I have sinned. This isn't really what was asked of me. Then turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21.1. Same story, different, said differently. Then Satan stood against Israel, and Satan incited David to number Israel. Then Satan stood against David and incited him, or against Israel, and incited David to number Israel. Now in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 7 and 8. But God was displeased with this thing that David did, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, again, I have sinned greatly in this thing that I have done, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for again, I have acted very foolishly. So... I'm going to ask you something. How has interpretation affected what you believe? How is it that David could hear this and believe this is the word of the Lord to me? How is it that Noah could hear these are the animals and these are the animals? These are the unclean, these are the clean. But throughout the history of the church, the church has only heard the verse that specifies the two. How has interpretation impacted, or our interpretation, your interpretation of Scripture, how has it impacted what you believe? There's words that we use today that have changed their definition over time. And I've said this before, and, and please don't take it wrong, but I've said, I said not too long ago, I said, tell all your friends that I'm the gay preacher. But I did that on purpose, to get a response. Because when, even in my lifetime, I'm 56 years old, even in my lifetime as a child, the word gay when I was growing up still meant what gay meant. It meant somebody that's just happy. They enjoy life. In my lifetime, gay did not mean what gay means today. So if I said 30 years ago or more, if I would have said, I'm a gay preacher, people that knew me would say, yes, you are. But today, to say I'm a gay preacher, people would say, are you really? Or, huh? There was a day in my lifetime when a minute was 60 seconds. <laughs> you know where I'm going with that. But at some point, a minute is no longer 60 seconds or a defined reference to time. A minute is anything that's longer than a season. When's the last time you saw the person you haven't seen for 18 years? It's been a minute. See, we used to say it's been a long time. 
But now in reflection of society, a minute, maybe 60 seconds for some really is a long time. But word use over time has changed. This is my point. Word use has changed so much over time that throughout history, when the Father first began to speak and He began to release, He said, those who worship Me must worship Me in spirit and in truth. This isn't a Second Testament word. This isn't a Second Testament statement that Jesus decided to say in the second. He was reiterating what was in the beginning of time. The moment the Father created Adam, He says, Adam, worship Me in spirit and in truth. You're going to worship Me. I created you because I want to be worshipped. Christ was only repeating what was said in the very beginning. But suddenly it became something new to us and, and defined very differently. When Yahweh spoke to Adam and he said, Adam, I'm creating you to worship me because I, I want to be, I'm a jealous God. I want to be worshipped. And he created Adam for that purpose. And Adam worshipped for however long. Adam worshipped him. And he worshipped him in the spirit and truth that he knew. And that was in his relationship. The language that he had with the Father could not be written on paper. It wasn't something. They didn't have written language. There was no need for written language. What, had written, what has written language done for you and me? It's caused us to begin to interpret things that the Father says in such a way that we get outside of worship. We get outside of spirit and truth. And we get into what people tell us is spirit and truth. What have they defined for us that is spirit and truth? If it's in the black and white page, then I can accept that that is spirit and truth. But if it requires something that I can't read with my natural eye or comprehend with my natural mind, it cannot be God. How have we gotten here? We're so focused on word use that we break things down in 10,000 ways. I've been guilty of it too. I'll stand up and I did it this morning. I told you that the Greek word for canon is that it is that measuring stick. That's what it means. In Greek, that canon, that word is measuring stick. I did it today. But you know what? To say that that canon is the authority for the continued word of God is to limit the Father and to say to Him, do not speak outside of what is written. Because if you do, you are violating the word, the spirit, and the truth of what you have given and proposed. That's an error. The only way we can worship the Father is to recognize that the language that the Father wants to speak to you and me isn't a language that is different in verse 23 and verse 27. It isn't a language that is one thing in the Gospel of Mark and another thing in Luke. It isn't a language that is defined differently in Genesis chapter 19 when they went to the mountain and the Father said, tell everybody to stand away. And then He said, why didn't they approach the mountain? See, in the mind of man, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that. We have a hard time because we filter this through a language that is not God's language. None of us in here, if you are speaking something right now, if you say something right now, out loud, audibly, and everybody in this room can understand it, that's not God's language. Nobody on planet earth can just open their mouth and begin to speak a language that everybody understands and it's God's language. 
It is a language of man, and God may use that language because he has not found anyone yet faithful enough or with a faith enough to believe that what he might say to them might confound what they've always believed. See, this is what I believe about Scripture. The spirit of Scripture is infallible. From Genesis to Revelation, that Bible and what is in it is infallible. But the words aren't. When I say infallible, I'm talking about without error. You agree with me, even if you feel like you disagree. I'll help you understand that in a minute. How many in here own any Bible outside of the King James Bible? Hold your hand up. Every one of you that just raised your hand completely agree with the statement I just made. Because if you believe that the King James was absolutely, the letter in it was absolutely infallible, you would never read another version because to change even one sentence or one word would be to say it wasn't good enough the way it was written or the way he gave it. So when we open this thing up, let me see your Bible, babe, please. So when we open this thing up, and I remember one time when one of the men of this house that I love so much, and Russell Wheatley was and is just differently now than he was, but he was so faithful, and I felt so much love from him, and so much liberty from him. I remember one time on 1792 when we first started the church and I took the Bible and I laid it on the ground and I stood on it. And Russell was angry. He was never disrespectful, but after service he came to me, I cannot believe you stood on the Bible. Yeah, that's right. And I said, what do you mean? He said, that thing is holy. And gave me all the reasons why I shouldn't stand on it. I said, Russell, it's a book. Is your relationship with that book? Or is your relationship with the one that book's about? And he got it. He just got it. Well, it seemed like he got it right then, but he might have gone home and told Kathy that he didn't get it right then. Maybe she took the brunt of it. But he got it. But you know what, did, you know what set him apart? was because Russell was the guy that said, help me see, show me, and I'm going to interpret this thing correctly. I'm going to get this. So when I talk about this, words on the page were never the intention of the Father for you and I, you or me, to have a relationship with Him. But the spirit of the words that are in this... They who worship me, he who worships me, she who worships me, him, whoever they are who worship me must worship me in the spirit of truth. In the spirit of the truth. So that's why, are all these editions incorrect? Are they wrong? Should we not follow? No, absolutely not. I'm, I'm going to read. And when they come out with a newer version that makes more sense, I'll read it. But I'm not going to get caught up in the letter of it. Listen to me today. 
Where we are and where the Father's taking us today, we're going to go out there and see what we do with our mind and our world and our way. We see people who are, who are not a part of the kingdom of God, and we immediately, through the word, through the letter on the page, begin to judge them. Even if we don't do it with our mouth, often we do it with our heart. We begin to judge them by the letter on the page, but when we begin to see them by the spirit of the truth, the spirit found within the truth, the spirit, say it with me, the spirit found within the truth, when we begin to look at things that way, then we can see this person that we go, ah, I can't believe we can all of a sudden find ourselves saying, this is the hopeless one that religion finds. So language is not as simple as we want to make it seem. Because, again, for someone in another country to read, the reason Cynthia Rollins does what she does, who we support in interpreting Scripture, the reason that she does it is because if she took all the words that are in this and took them there, they would be offended. They would never receive the gospel. Because it, the power isn't in the word that's on the page. The power is in the spirit, of, in the truth that the page is trying to declare. You're getting me today. So why is this important to you and me right now? Because again, John 4.24, God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We must. It is imperative that you and I, because word use changes over time. It looks very different as time begins to grow, generations pass. So many things are so different about everything that we do. But one thing that is constant is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God never changes. And His heart to have a people worship Him never changes. Don't hold people accountable for how many verses they don't know. One of my friends that has been a friend of mine for a long time, we were in a conversation one time, he's been a minister longer than me, and we were in a conversation one time with a group of men, and in that conversation, one of the men said, I don't remember what it was, but he said something, and, and, uh, and this other person that's a friend of mine that's a minister said, um, well, you know where that's at? Just simply saying, you know where that's at in the Bible? And he said, no, you know, I don't really know. And he said, you don't know where that's at? You don't know where that scripture is found? And I mean, just made, just in every way, just embarrassed this person, like, because they didn't know. But see, what I appreciated was the spirit that was drawn out of this man, not the law that came out of this one. Because this one who could memorize it didn't have the spirit of it. This one who had, did not have it memorized understood the spirit of it. So when we think about language in here, what does this have to do with all of us as we're gathered? Isn't this brief? This is very brief, isn't it? <laughs> you guys are... <laughs> Just a minute! <laughs> yeah, and in a minute, I'll be finished. <laughs> 
But for you and me, my exhortation today is, as we move into this and we're walking through this moment where the Holy Spirit is beginning to change our house, can I somehow help you see today that Scripture isn't what's written on the page? Scripture is what's within the letters in the page, the Spirit of what is written. When Scripture says in the Second Testament, Jesus wept because Lazarus was dead. Jesus wept. If all I do is read, Jesus wept. I'm left with the question, why? I'm left with the question, I didn't, or the thought, I didn't know he would cry because he knows all things. I'm left with the thought, why doesn't he fix it? He's the Son of God. But if I look deeper into that, and I see, and I say, Holy Spirit, when the language of God gave this to the men, the writers of this, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all inspired by Holy Spirit. Scripture is inspired, and the Spirit of it is infallible. But when the Father breathed the Word through Holy Spirit into the writers, whomever they might have been, First or Second Testament, when He breathed into them, He did not breathe into them and say, write this, Jesus wept. First of all, it wouldn't have said Jesus, because He wasn't Greek. It would have said Yeshua. But they wrote it the only way that they knew how so that the world could get the idea what, they were what the Father was trying to say. The writer's purpose wasn't to say, read this and verbatim, this is what it means. In every way, they wanted to convey, as you read this, read through it. Let it open windows and let it open doors and begin to take a journey into the deeper meaning of even Jesus wept. Because if I look at this and I read this and I see with my mind Jesus wept, I don't want to stop there. I want to see through that and with my spirit see He wept because He loves man. He wept because He's demonstrating how important relationships are. He wept because He realized and He recognized people around Him did not possess the faith that He knew they should have. These are the reasons that He wept. It's deeper than that. How can I keep Him from weeping again? What can I do so that there will never be a second verse that says Jesus wept because Sam did not interpret well. Jesus wept because Liz did not interpret well. Or Dakari did not interpret well. Or Steve said he would be brief. And Jesus wept <laughs> because he knew the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Don't say wow. Don't do that. Don't. <laughs> but when we think about the language, I want you to think about it this way. When you read, I encourage you read, but read through it. Those who worship Him must worship Him in the spirit 
of truth. A passion to know what's on the other side of the letter. I, I have to, my mind has to go through Adam. To, first the natural scripture says, then the spiritual. So my mind has to go through Adam, which is the letter, which is the cross T and the dotted I. But my spirit can get on the other side of that and find out what he's really trying to say. And if I do that, when I worship him in the spirit of truth, I don't get caught up in this one says this, but this one says that. It's this way in the New Testament. It's that way in the Old And I don't get caught up in that. What I get caught up in is what is the relationship between these two? And there's a reason this is here. This made sense to a people. This made sense to a people. It was said differently. But the spirit of it was exactly the same. It's important that we interpret well. And when we move forward with all that the Father's calling us to do, I encourage every single person under the sound of my voice, if you're watching online today, I want to thank you for being a part of what the Father's doing here, but I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Don't tune it out. Don't be offended by anything that you've heard that goes against whatever you might have learned in your past teachings. Don't run from it. Consider what Holy Spirit is saying. I'm not in any way taking away from Scripture. In fact, what I'm doing is helping you to see it for what it really is. It's deeper. It's deeper. And when we can see it that way, we have a better understanding of what He wants to do out there. We have a better understanding. That's what I want. To get outside of this place. What happened last week in the park? If we want to do that in such a way that the community begins to invite us in and let us in, I want to see the widow, not because she doesn't have a husband, but I want to see the widow. Some widows still have husbands. There are some lame who can still walk. There are some deaf who still hear, some blind who still see. But hopeless is hopeless is hopeless. How can we see that, Father? Do you hear me today? Stand with me if you would, please. Father.